DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. It is a delight to be with you again, Chris. In our exploration of the last retreat of this wonderful gift that Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity left for us, is important. I know we've said it repeatedly throughout this week bearing in mind that this is a gift from her final days. Yes, it is. At least the final days here on earth. That's right. She has a spiritual mission that she has in heaven. And I think people who study her writings and go through the retreats, either heaven and faith or the retreat we're working on, the last retreat, I think people open themselves up to that spiritual mission because her mission is to help lead souls deep into mental prayer. So if there's someone who really wants to pray deeply, if they ask Blessed Elizabeth to help them, she she said her mission is to lead souls out of themselves and into that place where the divine impact can happen and God imprints himself on the soul. That's all language for a very powerful kind of contemplation where under the impetus of the Holy Spirit that transforms our lives. Those are the graces she excels at. You know, she's not yet canonized at the time of this recording. It may happen soon. She's not yet canonized. But part of the reason she's not canonized is the graces she gives are interior graces. And for the church, those interior graces, uh, rather than the visible miracles, those are the hardest ones to discern. You know, they're, they're the most difficult to recognize. But they're the most powerful for our lives because those interior graces always lead to deep holiness. If you make her your spiritual friend, she's a saint who's going to lead you to the heights of holiness. Anyway, today we're going to be going over the ninth day in the last retreat. Be holy, for I am holy. Who then is this who can give such a command? He himself has revealed his name the name proper to him, which he alone can bear. I am who am, he said to Moses, the only living one, the principle of all other beings. In him, the apostle says, we live and move and have our being. Be holy for I am holy. It seems to me that this is the very same wish expressed on the day of creation when God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. 
It is always the desire of the Creator to identify and to associate His creature with Himself. St. Peter says that we have been made sharers in the divine nature. St. Paul recommends that we hold on to this beginning of His existence which He has given us. And the disciple of love tells us, Now we are the children of God, and we have not yet seen what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him makes himself holy, just as he himself is holy. To be holy as God is holy, such is, it seems, the measure of the children of his love. Did not the Master say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Speaking to Abraham, God said, walk in my presence and be perfect. This, then, is the way to achieve this perfection that our Heavenly Father asks of us. St. Paul, after having immersed himself in the Divine Councils, revealed exactly this to us when he wrote, God has chosen us in him before the creation of the world, that we might be holy and immaculate in his presence in love. It is also by the light of this same saint that I will be enlightened so that I might walk without deviating from this magnificent road of the presence of God on which the soul journeys alone with the alone, led by the strength of his right arm, under the protection of his wings, without fearing the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the evil that stalks in darkness, nor the attacks of the noonday devil. Strip off the old man in whom you lived your former life, he tells me, and put on the new man who has been created according to God in justice and holiness. This is the way set forth. We have only to strip off self to follow it as God wills. To strip off self, to die to self, to lose sight of self. It seems to me the Master meant this when he said, If anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. If you live according to the flesh, the Apostle also says, you will die. But if you put to death in the Spirit the works of the flesh, you will live. This is the death that God asks for and of which it is said, death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, says the Lord, I will be your death, that is, O oh soul, my adopted daughter, look at me and you will forget yourself, 
flow entirely into my being. Come, die in me, that I may live in you. It's a very powerful and beautiful reflection. And it's a reflection, though, that starts with the command to holiness. How many times have you heard people uh, explain away in your own life the command, Jesus' word, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect? Have you ever heard someone ever say, this is exactly what God means? No, not exactly. <laughs> I think the words that have come out of my mouth have been something a little bit different from that. You know, you're trying to say, well, I, I can't be like God. God would never command something that wasn't perfect. So I guess the two things to correct here are, on the one hand, a lot of people think this means you interpret it as do the best you can. Well, there's some truth to that. You, God really does want us to do the best we can. But doing the best we can, you know, giving it the old college try or however you want to put it, doesn't quite capture exactly what Jesus meant when he commanded, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. On the other hand, it, it is true that only God is absolutely perfect. When we talk about Christian perfection, when we talk about absolute perfection, only God is perfect. And creatures, that, that's you and me, we are perfect in relation to God. And so our perfection is not the same as God's in any absolute sense. We can be led into a perfection in relation to God or relative to God. And I know this sounds maybe a little bit abstract, but it, today it's an important thing to kind of stress. We have the influence of a lot of Eastern religions where the distinction between the creator and creature is sometimes uh, reduced to, to nothing. And when you collapse that distinction, you end up losing the element of a real relationship, a real friendship with God. And so in Christian theology, we uphold that by saying that God is absolutely perfect and creatures can be perfect in relation to him or relatively perfect. Relatively perfect, on the other hand, doesn't mean more or less. <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of maybe not really perfect, but kind of perfect, you know. Uh, that <laughs> that also we, uh, would be a little bit of an error and not quite what we mean theologically. To be, mm -hmm. to be relatively perfect in relation to God means to achieve the purpose that he made you for. And the great purpose that God has made you for, the ultimate purpose, is to be in union and friendship with him. And so when you achieve that union and friendship, even in this life, you are being brought into a kind of perfection already, even in this life. That great purpose is a beautiful purpose because when God wants us to be in communion with him, he not only wants us to be in communion with him, but also with one another in him. And so that's why our the perfection of the Christian life is realized in the church. The church is a communion of love united to God. So that's, that's another element about the perfection of the Christian life. It's, it's not something that you realize individualistically. The more you draw closer to God in friendship, the more you enter into a communion with all your brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone else in the world. You're implicated in the plight of all humanity, just like Jesus implicated himself in the plight of every single man, woman, and child who's ever been born. So Christian perfection is a powerful, beautiful ideal. The other thing, though, uh, uh, when we speak about relative perfection that, that we need to keep in mind, too, is 
there's the perfection of the blessed. Blessed Elizabeth, up until now, she's been referring to the blessed in heaven. In a couple days in a row, she's invited us to reflect about what the liturgy that is going on in heaven and how the hosts of heaven throw down their crowns before the Lord God and worship him in praise and thanksgiving. And she says, that is the model for us. We ought to be doing the same thing down here on earth, you know, and in the Our Father. In fact, we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what are they doing in heaven? Worshiping, adoring God with all their heart, all their strength, all their soul. And we should be doing the same thing. But the difference between heaven and here, in heaven, the saints in heaven have something called the light of glory. And with the light of glory, they are able to praise and love God and one another without ever ceasing. It's a fullness of life and love and gift to one another that never ends. It's, they never get tired. It's a perfection of love that's set into act. So that's what we mean by eternal life. It's not something boring. It's something so much more full in this life, we can't even imagine it. As Blessed Elizabeth quotes, St. John is saying, now we are the children of God, and we have not yet seen what we shall be. We, we don't really know exactly what that fullness of life is going to be, but we know it's going to be beautiful and powerful and rich. And that is our hope. And that's why we pursue holiness, because we are made to love like that. But what about this life? Is perfection possible in this life? And this is what we kind of started out about. And a lot of people who teach on this, because they're frustrated with their own failures and so forth, sometimes they want to kind of say, well, you know, I don't know. Can we really fulfill this command? Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity is completely convinced we can. And theologically, there's an explanation for her conviction. What we're able to do in this life, even, even though we can't love perfectly like we will in heaven, with the pure actual love that we'll have in heaven in the light of glory. In this life, with the light of faith, we can remove all the obstacles to God that are in our lives. And when we completely remove those obstacles so that nothing stands between us and the love of God, that's a kind of perfection. It means that when God does move in our hearts, and for a few minutes or moments, the power of his love flows through us in the way that it will in heaven without ceasing. But, but in this life, it happens just for a few moments. When that happens, because there's no blockages, God's love is so powerful, it completely transforms and changes our lives in a moment. And it also changes and transforms situations and circumstances and the lives of those we, we most love. That's the kind of perfection that, that's possible when Jesus has commanded us by faith. We can remove all the obstacles to his love in our life if we cooperate with the graces he's given us. There's another interesting element in this first paragraph where she begins, Be holy as I am holy, and then immediately after that, she goes into the theology of the name, the name revealed to Moses. I am who am. A lot of people think about this as kind of a very metaphor physical, philosophical idea, God who is ultimate being. And that element is in Blessed Elizabeth's writing here. She's not unaware of it. She's heard it in the preaching of her time. But she connects it with holiness, and she connects it with relationship. Be holy, for I am holy. Who then is this who can give such a command? 
He himself has revealed his name, the name proper to him, which he alone can bear. I am who am, he said to Moses, the only living one, the principle of all other beings. In him, the apostle says, we live and move and have our being. Be holy, for I am holy. It seems to me that this is the very same wish expressed on the day of creation when God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. It is always the desire of the Creator to identify and to associate his creature with himself. St. Peter says that we have been made sharers in the divine nature. St. Paul recommends that we hold on to this beginning of his existence which he has given us. And the disciple of love tells us, Now we are the children of God, and we have not yet seen what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him makes himself holy, just as he himself is holy. To be holy as God is holy, such is, it seems, the measure of the children of his love. Did not the Master say, Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? So when God revealed his name, I am who am, God was revealing something ineffable about himself that he is a mystery, but not just a mystery that we figure out like a murder mystery that you solve, but a mystery that is so beautiful that it draws your heart into love. Remember Moses, when he saw the burning bush, he was drawn to the burning bush. And when he was drawn by the burning bush, then he heard the voice say, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. When he engages, he says, well, you want me to do all these things for the people of Israel? You know, when the people of Israel ask, you know, why I'm doing all these things, who should I say sent me? He wanted to know the name of God. In the ancient world, when you knew somebody's name, you had control over them. And God reveals his name to Moses. And that revelation of the name is at the same time a little bit of a rebuke. You know, he gave him a name that's not really a name. I am who am. What does that mean? No one can really explain it. It's ineffable. But at the same time, he did really give Moses something so that Moses knew how who to call out to. Blessed Elizabeth associates this in divine ineffability of who God is, who entrusted himself to Moses. She associates that with holiness. Holiness is something totally transcendent and beyond this world and beyond ourselves and beyond everything that's visible. And yet the holiness of God is something that's really given us. So that when we receive the holiness of God, when we accept that into our lives, our lives are 
are no longer of this world. We are in the world, but not of it anymore. We belong to someone else. We're taken up into a greater mystery. That's what it means to be holy. Now, in the life to come, the fullness of that, we'll be able to see that for what it really is. But in this life, we have a, a foretaste of it when we accept a personal relationship with the Lord. It is our personal relationship with the Lord that makes us holy. On this note, I'm sure you've heard of Blaise Pascal. The, uh, he was a, a mathematician, something of a philosopher. A lot of people don't know that he was a great Catholic. He had sewn into the uh, lining of his jacket a little piece of paper that they found only after his death. And when they read that piece of paper, that piece of paper said, Fire! The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers. Now, what he meant by that, he wasn't trying to slam philosophy, but but sometimes we have an over-intellectualized version of God where the most true thing about God is this kind of unemotional concept that is above and beyond me. And so if I can think the highest thought, I've captured God. But that's not exactly who God revealed himself to be as Moses. God revealed himself to be as the God who is imminently implicated in all our affairs, who's concerned about our suffering and our plight, who's not afraid to implicate himself in that plight and to deliver us. Our God, the God who is ineffable, who's come to have a relationship with us, is the God who saves us. And blessed Elizabeth in this passage, she's looking at the name and she's looking at the holiness of God. And she's not seeing something that's so totally other that she can't have relation. She's seeing in that someone who's reached out to her personally and is reaching out to those who read this text personally and offering them a real relationship. And if you say yes to it, this is the source of holiness in our lives. Saying yes to God who comes to save us today. This is the holiness that Elizabeth has seen and invites us to share. Say yes to God who comes to you. He reveals his name to you. And he asks you to be holy. That is, to become whom you were meant to be. You were created in his image and likeness because God wants to have a friendship with you that will last forever and ever and never pass away. Now, Chris, I wanted to get your reaction. The way that you enter into this relationship, she calls it the pathway of the presence of God. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Wow, the pathway to the presence of God. It really implies a journey, doesn't it? Um, it does. She quotes God speaking to Abraham, walk in my presence and be perfect. So the way that we realize the perfection of the Christian life is a journey, just like you were you were saying, but it's a journey in the presence of God. Isn't that an interesting insight? It really does have that relationship aspect, doesn't it? Because he's always present, then there's an always a knowing. And when to be truly and fully known, it implies a relationship, both of the persons that are involved. You are absolutely right. In this case, the presence of God isn't always something we feel or understand or, or something that we can intuit or imagine. But the presence of God is something that we know by faith, something that we tr- choose to believe in. And so 
if we walk, if we conduct all of our affairs each day, believing that God is truly present to me right now in this circumstance, if he's truly present to me right now in this circumstance, why am I acting in anxiety? Why am I being frustrated? Why do I feel like I can't tell the truth? Why do I feel like I need to covet something in my heart that doesn't belong to me? If I'm really in the presence of God, don't I have everything I could ever possibly need, imagine, or want? It's right here in his presence. So I don't need to strive after things that other people have. Um, I don't need to be worried about my status with other people or the way they look upon me or what my reputation is. I don't need to be concerned about uh, one-upmanship and those, all those little games that go on because I am in the presence of God right here and right now. And I'm going to choose to conduct my affairs in this present moment with all the love that I can because if I'm in the presence of God, I'm in the presence of love. And I'm going to put believe in that presence and live in that presence with all the love I can. That's what a blessed Elizabeth is orienting us to when she talks about realizing the holiness of God, this relationship of, with God in our lives by always acting as if we are in his presence. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Wallace. Discerning Hearts is a spiritual retreat stop for those who travel on the digital sea. Archbishop George Lucas of Omaha has said that Discerning Hearts is a trusted resource for Catholic spirituality and teaching. He supports it as an apostolate for the new evangelization that brings the good news to every corner of the world. Discerning Hearts is an official 501c3 nonprofit apostolate. It creates engaging multimedia specializing in audio productions known as podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. By visiting the website discerninghearts.com or obtaining the free apps that are available for Android phones, iPhones, and iPads, listeners have available to them the best of teachings from Archbishop George Lucas, Father Timothy Gallagher, Deacon James Keating, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Monsignor John Essif, Joseph Pierce, Mike Aquilina, Omar Gutierrez, Teresa Monahan, Sharon Doran, and so many others, as well as all the episodes from Inside the Pages with Chris McGregor. And there, too, you'll find devotionals of every kind to listen to and enter into prayer with, like the Holy Rosary of Our Lady, the Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, and countless others. For many around the world, Discerning Hearts is a daily source of inspiration, spiritual nourishment, and encouragement. The world is looking for answers, for spiritual guidance and authentic discernment, for relationship and community. Please keep the work of Discerning Hearts in your prayers, and be sure to visit discerninghearts.com.